You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We bring national security law issues to you every week, as well as history and ongoing news that informs policy and law. I'm Elisa. Hey, Vet, how are you? Wearing a nice yellow sweater that totally works. That is amazing. <laughs> it is spring. Spring has sprung and it's almost uh, summer. It's great to be back with you, Elisa, recording and informing our listeners about everything national security law. Yeah, it's fun to be back with you too. But you know what happened was I took a look at the Supreme Court docket and I happened to notice that there are a lot of national security law issues coming up this term. So what do you think about that, Yvette? How exciting. You, you know that I do love when we do our Supreme Court reviews. So what do we got on the docket first? So we're just going to run through the docket today and we're going to wait to see how this shakes out. But let's talk first about um, United States versus Zubeda. Let's just frame the issues for our listeners, and then in the future, I guess, what we can do is we can direct them to where they can hear the oral arguments at the time. So the question before the court is whether the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit erred when it rejected the United States' assertion of the state secret privilege based on the court's own assessment of potential harms to the national security of the United States and require discovery to proceed further under 28 U.S.C. 1782A against former CIA contractors on matters concerning alleged clandestine CIA activities. Now, that was a mouthful, but I recall <laughs> this case, honestly, um, I think from when I was in law school taking national security law. So it's been around for a minute. Can you disentangle that for us, Elisa? Well, I can say what it looks like the issues are. So the important thing is they're talking about the state secrets privilege and, you know, national security in general being the province of the executive. And what they're saying here is that the judiciary made its own assessment. So there may be a separation of powers issue here and that it required certain discovery rather than accepting the assertion of the privilege by the United States. Secondarily, they're also talking about FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which has its own processes, certainly talks about people getting security clearances, but it doesn't specifically say what is privileged. You know, in the abstract, there could be something like a declassified FISA, but I think, quite frankly, it's understood that that's not what usually happens. So this is one to watch for sure. But let's move on. There is another one. It is called FBI versus Fazaga. All right, what is this one about, Yvette? Whether Section 1806F of the FISA Act displaces the state's secrets privilege and authorizes a district court to resolve in camera next party the merits of a lawsuit challenging the lawfulness of government surveillance by considering the privileged evidence. That's a mouthful as well. Yeah. And again, we're talking about privileges and national security law, and now it's before the Supreme Court. It's a merits hearing, it sounds like, which doesn't make any sense because, um, you know, it's the Supreme Court. But I think the issue here is, did the court err by considering privileged evidence? I don't know. I think the law is pretty settled on that, but it'll be interesting to watch. And of course, any case involving FISA is going to have a lot of eyes on it, for sure. Well, can we just like briefly go back into why this is an issue, what the uniqueness of the FISA court is and why this kind of challenge can be brought? 
So, right, the FISA court is a creation of the FISA statute, really, and um, it was passed back in the late 1970s, as you remember, Yvette, and that was in response to the FBI's domestic surveillance program, then ongoing COINTELPRO, and there were two sets of hearings, as you might remember. So there was one that was the Church Commission, and then there was one, I think, called the Pike Committee or Commission. And they were both kind of looking at the same thing. And you might remember those weather underground cases that got thrown out because there was surveillance that was done for uh, arguably national security purposes, but really they were outside of um, legal authority at that time. And FISA was enacted in the wake of those massive scandals. And it set up a process for when and how you could do this kind of thing. And the process is pretty clear. It established the court, how the judges were selected, and in general, they are selected under the law by the chief justice, and they're sent for a term sitting on the FISA court where they listen to these things, these arguments by the government attorneys who are trying to get these FISAs. The standard, of course, we all know has to do with whether or not the individual or the account is an agent of a foreign power. And so obviously, a lot of that takes place in camera, um, obviously, ex parte. These things are always worth watching because anything that happens more or less in secret gets everybody nervous and FISA always gets everybody nervous. It sure does, because people do not love the fact that it is not an adversarial process. It was, it's really the government making a presentation to the FISA court about whether or not to get a warrant. And it's the whole point is that it's executed in secret. And so the subjects are not aware of the government's uh, inquiry. And so it is really a one-sided process. And civil rights advocates have decried the use of FISA. They are extraordinarily concerned that um, it's a self-dealing process, whereas there's always been tremendous pushback from the intelligence community and from the court system that uh, it really is a rigorous process. And so it's a balance between the devil you know and the devil you don't. So we'll see how these two national security cases turn out. What else do we have coming up, Lisa? So we have a couple of other little interesting news items. And a lot of these things kind of take us back to some of the conversations that we've had in podcasts before. But to me, one of the more interesting things is what's happening with supply chain. And we've all been aware of it because we couldn't get PPE. You went to the grocery store and there'd been a run on things and you couldn't get that stuff. One of the issues has always been a concern about our national defense and what would be issues with respect to supply chain? If we had aircraft that we needed to fly defensively or offensively and we couldn't get apart, what would we do? And of course, we're naturally all worried after um, a lot of the recent events regarding hacks and vulnerabilities that were sort of embedded in things. You know, we're all kind of concerned about that. So the Air Force did what sounds a little fantastical, it's setting up 3D printers to produce parts for aircraft. So what do you think about that? I, you know, as an Air Force veteran, I gotta say flexibility is the key to air power. I think that's delightful. But there are some other things that you can't hack as easily as aircraft parts. For example, we're having a shortage of chlorine, which is important for the water supply. We're having, uh, you know, we have a shortage of kind of the most seemingly random things that will have um, knock-on effects to this consumer supply chain and ultimately uh, in the national security supply chain. And so it is interesting to see how we're able to gin up our industrial base in order 
to counteract some of these defects. But I was talking with a friend who was considering buying a car and I advised him against it because car prices are up 15%. We don't have the chips for it. And used car prices are, are also up something like 30%. It's going to be interesting to watch our economic post-COVID recovery, as well as um, how the national security apparatus is able to flex around that recovery. So I, I would recommend people ride their bikes, although I understand there was a real supply chain issue with respect to bicycles since they are largely manufactured in Taiwan, which, you know, pretty much shut down during COVID. So that's my big ad for the week. That's my huge policy suggestion. But I would- I, and, and I'd love to I'd love to cite, you know, the source, a quote from the Air Force, uh, Nathan Parker, who's the deputy program executive officer at RSO. He says the ability to additively manufacture an aircraft engine part and gain military airworthiness is a significant step forward in growing the adoption of additive manufacturing in the Air Force, which in civilian speak is, it's pretty cool that we can print these 3D parts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought it sounded like really cool. I mean, that this was our fun. I think the word would be, wow, this is fun. All right, so we've got an interesting appointment, as you know, under the NDAA, We've got a cyber czar, more or less, again, which we need in this country, quite obviously, because there just doesn't seem to be great coordination. And we're a country that depends on our our online operations for survival at this point. So it looks like what has happened is there is an Air Force veteran who has been named as the deputy director, who was named as the deputy director of NSA, has now been nominated by President Biden to be the cyber chief, basically, at the White House. So, and that was part of the NDAA, you might remember, but I find it interesting because the person who endorsed him, I guess, first and principally was uh, Senator Angus King, who is an independent, as you know, Yvette, and who co-chaired the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So we did an NDAA podcast, and we'll link in the show notes, uh, that we did a deep dive into this particular legislation. Um, It created a national cyber director with the idea that there would be a central place to coordinate our cyber defenses. And with the recent significant ransomware hacks um, that we've had of our major beef producers, and the fact that they, you know, these private businesses have elect to pay those ransoms and that we don't have a, you know, a government response like that's set up. We're really kind of dealing with these things as they roll in. Um, I think this is an extraordinarily timely appointment. This week, there were hearings on nomination of Chris Inglis. He appeared before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, and he is, if confirmed, he is going to have a big job to try and get the reaction of the government to these increasingly more serious ransomware and other types of cyber attacks coordinated, especially given the way that our infrastructure a lot of times is in private hands. Yeah, it is increasingly, and it's a sort of an interesting tension because if you think about how private, well, public companies in particular are obligated to function in order to uh, answer to their shareholders, that is not always uh, answering to the national security of the United States. Um, it's, it's not exactly set up that way. That's exactly right. We're, we remain a capitalist society. So there are some clear positives uh, and there are some drawbacks when it comes to setting up an enterprise-wide solution for hardening our infrastructure. So and I we think will it's see. hard to justify the cybersecurity expense 
And a lot of times it's especially hard to do that when you're talking about a board, which could be comprised of elderly people who don't quite get it. And it, it seems awfully abstract and unclear to them why the money capital sh uh, expenditures should be made on cybersecurity. Then things like this happen. Or, or people who are willing to accept risk, right? So, I mean, it's not too far away from, you know, even the government of Texas deciding to accept risk in the power grid, right? And that is a, is a motley crew of independent private entities uh, that are overseen by a quasi-governmental oversight agency, and they accepted risk. Two guys at a desk. <laughs> they accepted risk, and and frankly, people died and had, and there was tremendous uh, property damage. So, there's always the balance of okay, well, you know, we're going to make these investments that are going to be transparent. You only know the investments are working if nothing happens. I mean, it's very hard to make that pitch to the shareholders or people who are looking to turn a profit, but it is a national security risk. We have limited tools in the government to oversee and we have limited political will uh, to regulate and exert the powers that we do have in the government in some cases. So we will see if this position indeed creates some order out of the chaos and madness that we have seen in recent weeks. All right, so we've got to we've got to talk for a second. So Biden just came back from the G7, and he's promoting NATO, which is something that Putin hates. Right? We know this because we talked to the guy who knows a lot about Putin, Rob Dannenberg, who had been the station chief twice for the CIA, and and we know this because we know that Putin was on that wall when it came down, and sort of NATO and the concept of democracy was expanding. Let's talk. What are what are the three things that Biden is going to take to this meeting with Putin, which interestingly enough follows right on the meeting with the G7 and his affirmation of the strength and importance of NATO. So what do you think about these things, Yvette? It's it's very interesting. Um, we're having President Biden is taking uh, a different approach to Russia than previous administrations. He has signaled that he is going to push hard on, especially topics that are important in, in the national security space. Uh, we've got nuclear, ransomware, and human rights. And you know the Russian government and President Putin have signaled back that they are, are going to respond quite firmly. So we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, June 17th. By the time this airs, I think meeting will have happened. I'm sure at least you and I will follow up um, on it. But the dynamics between the current U.S. government and the Russian Federation are going to change and I think change rapidly. The U.S. has lodged a formal complaint about the imprisonment of the main opposition leader, um, Alexei Navalny. Right. And the fact that he is suffering and he is in ill health, his opposition organization has been outlawed in, in Russia. And these are all the hallmarks of even more exertion of authoritarian control um, while trying to retain the fig leaf of democracy. And so I think while we are also kind of having a renewed conversation in America around what democracy means and how to keep it strong, I think it's really a, just a fascinating time in history. And we will definitely be bringing you bulletins from the front lines as they occur.
Yeah, it's uh, I wonder how this is received in Russia when they've seen, you know, like the storming of the Capitol. And I noticed that the human rights issues now kind of moved to the third place in line. The proper first issue, of course, is a nuclear. That makes sense, you know. And then second, of course, is this ransomware thing, which could have a, a, you know, a really awful effect on the United States and particularly smaller countries. So we're keeping an eye up. All right. For sure. And just before we move on off of the ransomware, the interesting thing about that is we have credible reasons to believe that this ransomware is state-sponsored. Um, if if at the if not in at least encouraged by the Russian Federation, essentially it's open season in uh, for cyber criminals on targets in the U.S. as long as they're not Russian speaking or Russian allies, and we are seeing those effects daily in the U.S. So what I thought you were going to say is that Rob Dannenberg had told us that uh, Putin's grip on power depended on oil remaining at forty dollars a barrel. And that when they shut down that pipeline, price of oil shot up. That's what I thought uh, you were going to say, Yvette. Well, no, I left that for you to say, Elisa. Okay, I All right, well, that's it for the week. And as we ease out of this pandemic, just know that we're going to be back to deliver content. Next week, we're going to be talking about the micro-targeting algorithm and social media and what can be done, if anything, or if anything should be done. Kind of change that so that we don't split in two as a country. So that's it. We'll be back. You can grow your professional opportunities by looking at the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security's website. We'll keep you informed about these opportunities and expand your um, knowledge of the law and events that will affect national security law going forward. We want you to remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. Send us an email at national security at americanbar.org and we all hope that you enjoyed this wonderful juneteenth weekend we are celebrating the emancipation of the slaves as a country it's not quite an official national holiday but it is in texas <laughs> so hopefully we will get more recognition for that great celebration as we go forward an excellent and positive thought from a woman of color who has served in the u.s military as have so many people of color and who have participated in national security service in one form or another. Let's just remember the importance that they have held in our country as Americans. Never forget it. Juneteenth was just a little bit late. All right, Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed, to give you context on fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.